the refugee crisis, it was just sort of a circumstance. It was the elephant in the room that we couldn't ignore anymore. In fact, my personal focus was, you know, I wanted to, to really dig into the problem of informal settlements and upgrading with informal settlements in my home city of Cairo and trying to do more research-oriented projects. Welcome to Arcanex Sessions One-to-One. I'm Amelia Taylor-Hockberg, and this week I'm speaking with Amro Salam, one of the architects behind Architects for Society. Formed last year by a collective of international architects, the firm's name kind of says it all. They focus on humanitarian and social welfare projects from the perspective of a diverse set of experienced practitioners. One of their first projects, Hex House, is a solar-powered single-family unit designed for deployment in refugee camps and other displaced communities. Salam shared with me the firm's origin story and their mindset towards architecture's involvement with humanitarian efforts. Amro Salam, thank you so much for coming on to Archonnect Sessions one-to-one. So you started Architects for Society in September of 2015, but before that, you were working for Herzog de Maron. Can you tell us a little bit about your background prior to starting Architects for Society? Well, thanks for having me as a representative of, uh, of Architects for Society. The idea of Architects for Society started uh, probably five or six years before we actually started it. And myself and, and a gentleman and in, in, uh, another fellow architect in, uh, in Montreal, we had started this, uh, this w- sort of uh, online Facebook group called Architects for Gaza. And it was during the incursion on Gaza, and we thought that architects could could somehow mitigate the the fact that they weren't able to bring in construction materials, and and we would uh, sort of come up with um, with ways of 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 doing without you know typical concrete and steel. So within that sort of realm, we we also did projects on our own. Murad, who was the other architect in, in, in Canada, he was working on other projects uh, outside of his you know, normal practice, doing uh, you know, pro bono work for, for his local community. And I was doing the same. And then we, we thought, well, you know, let's, let's formalize this. And meanwhile, I was in, uh, in, in Switzerland. I've also met a lot of like-minded people, although working on very high-end uh, design and projects with very large budgets. We were always thinking that, uh, and we, we would spend many hours discussing the, the issues around uh, me personally, because I, I have a background from Cairo, Egypt. I've always researched informal settlements and have been fascinated by them. And other people, uh, one of our other uh, uh, partners who was in uh, Jordan, uh, had, and is also from a Palestinian background, has, has done the same. And we also have a, an Indian architect and, 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 and even architects that are in Northern Europe, we've always had discussions around how we could, how architects need, especially in the future, need to be a little bit more engaged or a lot more engaged with, with, the, with the environments that they, that they live in and be aware of the, let's say, the 99% that don't have uh, sufficient housing. So essentially, nine months ago, I moved, I left, I brought my family back to the Twin Cities, where I, ha- I do have roots here. And we decided together that while we're sort of in between jobs, some of us also, uh, a few of them also left Herzog and Demerol. And a few that I met here in Chicago are still sort of working with other firms. But we collectively got together and said, this is a, a great idea. The refugee crisis hit. 
and uh, our, our friends in Northern uh, Europe were very keen on getting something started. So we started quickly mobilizing and doing sketching and designing and trying to contact our contacts in Hamburg and uh, in other parts of, of Europe and Amsterdam. And, and just to, just to design, just to, to be able to say, look, we, we, let's get started and, and do something that's real. So this began as a very much, very much specifically as a response to the current refugee crisis. Is that the target group of the so-called disadvantaged communities that you're trying to focus your work towards? No, not at all. In fact, the, the refugee crisis, it, it was just sort of a circumstance. It was the elephant in the room that we couldn't ignore anymore. In fact, my personal focus was, you know, I wanted to, to really dig into the problem of informal settlements and upgrading of informal settlements in my home city of Cairo and trying to do more research-oriented projects. So then it, the people, David Koch, one of our partners, who's in, he's in Spain, but he's originally German, started saying, well, wait a minute, guys, our, our country is being swamped with, with refugees. What can we do? And the you know winter was around the corner, and there was an influx of refugees that were living out in 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 the open on lawns. And so we did an initial concept that he um, took it to his uh, contacts in government, where it involved uh, hay bale construction and mobilizing the residents or the, the the refugees themselves to to put together very simple construction techniques that were local to to that climate. Of course, they laughed at us and <laughs> they said. Hey, Bill, hey, that's, you know, we have fire code and we couldn't convince them that, in fact, it has a higher fire rating than than uh, than timber construction. But uh, so we we had to sort of keep going. And eventually we found uh, an organization, a university in in, uh, in Sweden, who was uh, Chalmers University, who was working on a project, a studio project to develop uh, rapidly deployable shelters for Al-Zatari camp in Jordan where one of our partners was was living and working at the time. And so we started helping them gather, you know, doing research, gather video and images and interviews. And then that sort of tra transpired into, well, why don't we, you know, so they developed a pretty theoretical project that they used a robotic, robotic arm to cut foam and um, very beautiful projects. We actually feature it on our website also. But we thought, you know, we're experienced architects. Can't we come up with a solution? And that was the premise for the Hex House. So we'll get to the Hex House specifically in a little bit. I want to ask you a little bit about that. But I'm also wondering about the specific composition of architects in Architects for Society, because as it mentions on your website, they're, they hail from all over. But I'm wondering, are they all based in Minneapolis now where the firm exists? Or are they working remotely from those different locations? No, they're all remote. Uh, there's a few, there's, there's three of us here in Minnesota. One of them is a physicist, so he's not even an architect. He's an academic physicist. The others are in literally in Amman, Jordan. There's two in the Netherlands, in Amsterdam, one in Madrid, one in Phoenix, uh, one in Montreal, Chicago, and Surat, India. So these are this is where they are. They're actually located. And the, the idea is that we would would be able to uh, collaborate on projects that are sort of global like the Hex House, but then that we would also engage our local communities and be able to kind of leverage each other's experience and knowledge 
And because also not all of us are architects. There's, there's a, like I mentioned, one is a, is a physicist. There's another woman who's uh, in the Netherlands. She's, a, she's in development and she's worked for UNESCO and is kind of building up the, 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 the public development sector of, of, of AFS. And some of us are academic architects like Sonal from India. She's uh, more of an academic as well as uh, Altov, who happens to be from India, but lives in, uh, in uh, Phoenix. So what was the motivation for having, for example, the physicist? What is his role in the organization? We wanted a, a, uh, a non-architect to simply somebody who is intellectual, somebody who, is, who understands uh, processes. And he's also, uh, Dr. Steve, he's also very involved in community-based uh, development in, in his small city of St. Peter, Minnesota. So we thought that he was a perfect uh, sort of outsider to to the to architecture thinking. So I, I wanted to ask specifically about in the kind of business practice of the firm and this collaborative nature of working with all these architects and non-architects um, all over the world. What was your familiarity with other similarly minded organizations, but ones that are more charitable rather than actual design firms? I'm thinking specifically of ones like Architecture for Humanity or other nonprofits or charitable organizations that try to serve similar communities, but aren't formatted as traditional design firms. What was your experience working with those in the past, or, or did you have any? No, we, uh, like I mentioned, we were strictly, I mean, okay, so there was one gentleman, Murad, who's in is Montreal. He's, he's worked with, with them on, uh, and collaborated with them uh, as an individual architect. Me personally, I didn't, and I know most of our, our group did not. We are strictly, you know, design architects from different sort of different scopes of, of design. Some of us are more into development. Some of us are more into project management. Some of us are into re- redevelopment or uh, upgrading of, of uh, urban environments. So we really didn't, don't have much experience as a group working under those kind of uh, those, those, those business models, if you will. So I guess I, I'm asking because I'm interested in how then you decide to choose to do similar kinds of work, but also knowing that or, or thinking that maybe the best way to do it is from starting this firm rather than trying to align yourselves with other organizations already involved in similar work. Well, I think if I understand your question correctly, I think we we would like to be able to collaborate with some of these organizations. I think what's interesting is we see it as a double edge double edged sword or two sides of a of a coin or however you want to name it. But it's it's um, the fact that we don't have this kind of public service experience, at least the majority of us. So we are, we're coming at the problem from a purely commercial aspect, and we're trying to build a model that. Is and we don't know what that model is yet, but we're trying to build a model that is makes it profitable for architects to do public work. And we don't know if that involves just a you know being in the middle of a crisis and therefore it sort of propels you into this, or being creative and figuring out. For example, I keep coming back to the hex house. The hex house was sort of self-generated, and it wasn't you know it was sort of like the we sometimes we use the example of Banksy, who he goes out and he's not commissioned by anybody. And in spite of people, he does his own work. He does his own art. And I'm not sure if he's if if he's making it a good business model, but he's made a, a footprint for him for himself in, in the art world. And that model is interesting to us where we see a problem. We go after a solution from different uh, points of view. 
and we put it forward to the public. And then we, we seek the funding for it, where it, the other sort of established organizations work in a, you know, as you know, a slightly different way. This is kind of, generally speaking, how we would like to do things. Is that, have we been successful? Not yet. <laughs> we're still, we, you know, we're struggling. We, it's been nine months. We haven't uh, necessarily brought in any uh, financial support yet. We're still applying for grants. But yeah, I mean, I hope that answers your question. Well, it is interesting because it is definitely a model that you see all types of firms adopting, regardless of the type of work that they're doing, that they are more becoming more, um, there's a higher prevalence of, or at least seemingly a higher prevalence of self-initiated projects, of ones that have no client per se, or certainly no backing per se, but are being proposed kind of out of a perceived need. And with something like the refugee crisis, which the Hex House is in response to, there's clearly a perceived need. But I'm wondering, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about the background for that proposal and who you were working with to kind of make it a reality or a potential reality. Yeah, the background is the work that we were doing with uh, Chalmers University in uh, in Gothenburg, Sweden. We we had a, one of our old colleagues who we worked with at Herzog, Dumeril, was still finishing his his school, and his so he invited us because he knew that we had just formed this organization, and he knew that Yusuf, one of our members, was was in Jordan. So we helped them develop uh, kind of a a bio or a biography of the area, and especially the the Al Zaatari camp. And so that that's spawned this idea of okay, well, what can we do? as architects for society, if we had the opportunity. So we gave ourselves the opportunity and we looked around and we said, typically the upgrade from the tent locally is a, is, is a caravan, what they, what they call a caravan. It's essentially the equivalence of a mobile home. And it is constructed out of a, a SIP, which is a structural insulated panel. In fact, there it's, it's not really a SIP, it's not structural, but it, you know, it's, a, it's an insulated sandwich, if you will, of two layers of steel and a very thin layer of insulation. And so we use that as a, you know, we thought that's a readily available material. It's fairly, fairly cheap. And uh, let's, let's use that as our basis. So we started, we just started designing it uh, and we put our, we put constraints on ourselves. We said it has to be first, first and foremost, because of some of the extremely tough images that we saw in the camps, we said it had to be dignified, meaning it had to have all the amenities to, to last the people the 10 or 20 years that, that, that you know, the typical refugee camp uh, has a lifespan of, which, and it's not the one or two years that the tent is allows them to live, or even the caravan. And it had to be rapidly deployable, and it had to be, it had to address certain features of being off the grid. So we went to, uh, because of the fact that we, we got a lot of our information from there, we discussed some you know, some needs that the, that the locals had and understanding how the typical Syrian families lived in, in, in Damascus and other, and other large cities. We knew we needed to create something that has to do, or that, that has a, the, the form of a, a courtyard home. So all these, all these constraints, we, we decided to use the, the hexagonal shape because of, it was the shape that allowed us to not have any structure in the walls and and the seat and the roof and then it also allowed us to it was a nice generative structure that allowed us to create interesting exterior spaces and so we we started discussing with some local manufacturers of these caravans and and uh started designing at the same time and and yeah and and we in terms of backing we we're still going after uh support from foundations 
uh, we we're partnering we're trying to partner up we haven't completely signed the contract yet with a uh, a sip manufacturer in Florida who the 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 plan is to have them put forward the the structure and the shell and uh, erect it and 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 test it in Florida and then ship it to Minneapolis where we can then fit it out fit fit out the interior by also kind of soliciting donations from interior material manufacturers. So was there a particular method that you decided on before heading out to kind of consult with the communities that this project would be serving um, and that one that you would be using in the future to collaborate and, and build for these disadvantaged communities? You mean a methodology of gathering what, what the needs are of the, com- of the community? Precisely. The methodology was simply, you know, interviewing and looking at the videos that, that Yusuf had uh, had brought back and listening to the people and then just understanding a little bit about the Middle Eastern culture because, you know, he, he's he's from that location and, and it's, a, it's sort of an arid desert climate. And was, so a part, part of it was the technical understanding of what, what's needed in that environment, which kind of gave way to some of the passive cooling techniques, for instance. And... That, that sort of traced back to Hassan Fathi in, in, in Egypt, you know, these kind of cooling towers, which we did a miniature version of it in, in, in the house. And then a combination of the social aspect of, of how these people lived and needed, we needed to create something that is a sort of a, a more radial orientation when, when this unit was, was meant to be sort of produced and generated over a plan, over an urban plan. It had to have a, a sort of a central plaza and an area of gathering because this is how these people are mostly tribal and they have kind of family structures. Yeah, so we, it, was a, it was a combination of these, these issues. And what are some other communities that you would see, foresee in the future working with um, as part of Architects for Society? Well, locally, locally here, uh, I mean, locally in, in the U.S., we, uh, there is also a very large problem with, specifically with the Hex House as an application. A Hex House is just one solution. We hope that our work is, is not just the Hex House and the refugee crisis, but we, we see that the, in the inner, inner city, there is a lot of, a lot of problems and a lot of problems that have to do with policy, not necessarily, des- you know, bad design, but policy of, you know, from the urban planning policies and, and zoning uh, zoning policies that sort of keep the situation as it is for the for the urban uh, for the urban dwellers and the inner city people who don't have who have problems with public transport who don't have cars to uh, who jobs are very limited to you know or a small radius from where they live so we hope to start taking on some of these projects and and uh, one of our team members in in uh, Chicago Adam Whipple that's exactly what he does is he he goes into neighborhoods and he does a performance and, and tries to understand what it takes to to upgrade that neighborhood now it might be from a from a more commercial perspective but we hope to apply some of those same forces that are that are for profit and leverage that knowledge to the the disadvantaged or those those very difficult communities. Could you say a little bit more about specifically who that might be in the course of those kind of, I guess you're casting it as those who are disadvantaged by zoning. Can you tell me a little bit more about what exactly you mean by that? So, yeah, so for, I'll give you a microcosm here in, in Minneapolis. We have North Minneapolis, which is predominantly African-American. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's gone through the the sort of the shifts of, People moving out of the city uh, in in the 80s, 
and living out in the suburbs and and then sort of depressing the area and then those people being sort of pushed back into the city because that's where they can afford. And then now, uh, you know, the, the quote unquote gentrification is happening in most urban places as well as in, in Minneapolis. And it's sort of starting to price those people out of their their homes. So then they're getting pushed out. And uh, so so that's one group. There's also a very um, important group, the, the, the American Indian communities who right now are going through a, a pretty difficult housing crisis. And then, you know, and then globally also, I can speak for, for Cairo, for instance, there's a huge, huge problem. I mean, the, the very fact that we have these informal settlements is because of lack of government interest and, uh, and policy that, that addresses the overcrowding or uh, the housing of those people. They, they spend billions and billions of dollars uh, building these sort of out, uh, these, these gated communities outside the city that only people with cars can can commute to and uh, they the, the the other 99% are not even on the radar and if they are they're more more of a a, a problem to, that needs to be addressed rather than than a resource that that and I, I really believe these these communities should be looked at as a resource not as a plight not as a, a difficulty and and in, uh, this this is also why in our organization we're not just uh, designers we're also researchers and we're also artists and we use art as, a, as an educational tool to educate people about some of these environments because of the strong impact of artwork and, and image making. What kind of art is that and where, where has it been uh, exhibited? So because of my research in the informal settlement side, I've been developing a lot of these images. You could see them, some of them on, on our website under art and education. And they mostly involve, involve the informal settlements in Cairo and how it's essentially trying to extract and highlight the ingenuity, the urban structures and the, the linking, the, the rich sort of uh, entrepreneurialship uh, of, of even the youngest of the young uh, the you know the, the whole idea of decentralizing economies and sort of the micro entrepreneurship. There's so many great things that are happening there, and and they're not just in Cairo. There's they're in the squatters of India and and uh, and and many others across the world and South America for sure. And uh, we we need to kind of leverage some of the knowledge and, and ingenuity that that the people are taking on completely self organized. And, and try to understand that here uh, in, in, in our formal world of, of the West, just, just as a way of learning, you know, as a way of understanding how we can organize and not, not to always rely on, you know, the systems and the formalized systems that we have. So I wanted to ask you about your, if you had any comments or any opinions on this year's Venice Biennale theme, reporting from the front, um, as it's been interpreted and what we've seen coming out of it so far, as I should note, this podcast is being recorded before the actual opening, but it will air once the Biennale has already opened. But what has been viewed so far does have this bend or at least interest in socially minded architecture, architecture that does take more of its own um, agency in determining which projects to go for in regards to addressing social issues worldwide, many of them around housing shortages or explicitly the ongoing refugee crisis. So I was wondering if you in particular or others within your firm have any opinions or comments on what's going on in the Biennale or the Biennale's theme just in general. Well, you know, 
I think it's a great thing. I, of course, some would say, well, what's the Biennale got to do with this in terms of their their high sort of high design and high high budgets and you know it's it's a show of of the world's top designers and and within the world of star architecture how how is this fitting yes the, and i think it's it's a valid it's a valid critique however i think it's it only help, if if you're looking at the the situation and the dire needs of some of these communities especially the the displaced internally displaced or externally displaced people it, it can only help so if it helps, great. That's great that the that the the star architects and the high the high sort of high end designers are looking at this. You know, I myself and a lot of my colleagues have come from that world of of high design where we spend millions and millions on on, on a on, on just you know building a, a model. You know, and and the design fees are enormous. And uh, you know, a facade, a mock up for a facade is you know a couple hundred thousand euros. So, and this is just a mock-up that is not going to be thrown away. It could only help in the long term. It's great because, you know, our philosophy is if, if you can come at this, this, this problem or this challenge of inadequate housing or refugee housing, if you can come at it from a perspective of, of a high designer, because a high designer, what, is a, what does a high designer do? They spend time refining and refining and refining the design because the economics allows them to do that. Okay. So we just need to figure out a way to make the economics allow us to do the same thing for the, the disadvantaged communities or let's say projects that are for dis, disadvantaged so that the projects are themselves are a work of art and a work of architectural wonder. You know, I think those people deserve the same, if not better, considering their their displacement and their disposition in life. And I think overall, if we start to look at it that way, it a gives our our work as architects and designers uh, a substan uh, gives it gives it substance and meaning, and it it makes our other work, let's say our our sort of high design or high end world, those projects, it gives them another edge where it's it, you're working because you're on one hand you're working in in an area of completely uh, isolated and limited resources and and then on the other hand you're working with uh, in unlimited resources so if you can begin to you know sway or let's say bring some of the knowledge from one into the other and have them uh, feed into each other in terms of what you learn from one project versus the other i think it enriches both and we shouldn't be this kind of oh the, these guys they do they do public interest design oh and then these guys they do you know high end design i think it should just be design the funding and the economics we need to work on that because you know I, i'm not an economist and i'm not a i'm not a you know most architects are not very good business people and i i <laughs> i would have to admit that i'm i'm not one of those either but thankfully i have someone on the board that are we will figure it out. We'll figure out that that economic uh, link. Well, Amr Salam, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today and talking a little bit about Architects for Society and Hex House and all of the future projects that might come along. Thanks again. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Architect Sessions One to One with Amr Salam. Danilo Voinov edits the podcast, and Matt Skillings composed our music. Myself and Paul Petrunia are the producers of One to One. New episodes come out every Monday. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Google Play Music. And if you like the podcast, please consider leaving us a review. We are at Arc Sessions on Twitter, and you can email us at connect at arcconnect.com. Thanks again for listening to One to One. <laughs>